Words capture feelings in beautiful ways. Uh, here are some non-English examples. Uh, koi non yukan, Japanese, for when you meet someone and you know immediately that you will fall in love. Saudade, this is Portuguese. That's the feeling when you're longing for an absent person you love, but you feel like you'll, they'll never return. Cavoli riscaldate, this is Italian, translated reheated cabbage. It's the feeling you have when you're trying to revive an unworkable relationship. And kummerspeck, German word, translated grief bacon. This refers to weight gain, referred to excessive eating that stems from feeling sad. Words are beautiful, aren't they? Isn't it great that we've moved past the 13-year-old grunt stage, most of us, and we've moved past the communicate feelings by emoji stage, most of us, and we now collect letters together that communicate the emotions of life. Have a look at chapter 216. 216. My love is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn around, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the divided mountains. Welcome to the Song of Songs, the most controversial book in the Bible. It's a love song about intimacy, sex, patience, and commitment. And its controversy starts in Chapter 1, verse 1. See it there? The Song of Songs. Now, there have been some great love songs over the last 60 years. So right now, you've all got kind of one in your head that's like your love song. You might be an Aerosmith, I don't want to miss a thing sort of person. You might be like a Billy Joel Uptown Girl sort of person or a Goo Goo Dolls Iris or a Beach Boys God Only Knows. The Song of Songs is claiming to be the best love song ever written. You see it there? The song. Not songs. The song of songs. Now, if that is true, it's worth listening to. Don't you agree? If it's the greatest love song ever written, we really should listen to it. And its content is very controversial. Its poetic form, it transports us into the world of feelings and emotions. And we move in the Song of Songs from reality to dreamland and back to reality. And we listen to unashamed love language and descriptions of passionate kissing and lovemaking using gardens and mountains and lilies. The most intimate part of life described in a sensitive way, never vulgar, but also too raunchy for some. For 2,000 years, Christians have really struggled with the meaning of this book. And there have been two camps. On one camp, we've got the literal reading, which is Song of Songs is to be read earthly, physical. It's a portrait of human love. Some people have called it the Bible's sex manual, waiting for, anticipating and enjoying sex. In 550 AD, the Council of Constantinople banished the literal reading of the book in churches and enshrined a spiritual reading. 
So the book was to be read as an allegory, where each of the characters in the book represents a spiritual relationship. So the man and the woman are God and the church, or God and Israel, or Mary and the church. So if you have a look at chapter 1, verse 13, her beloved resting between her breasts is Christ hanging between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not very convincing, is it? Now, the allegorical reading is not as silly as it sounds. The Bible begins with a garden, and in that garden is an intimate relationship between God and people. Israel in the Old Testament is described as a bride and a vineyard. And in Ephesians, Paul makes an analogical connection between God's love for humans and the marriage of a man and a woman. However, the allegorical reading that discards the physical relationship is more Greek than biblical. The Greek worldview, think Plato, Aristotle, very influential in how we think. What they did is they separated they separated the physical earthly bad from the heavenly spiritual good. So sex was earthly physical, earthly unholy, bad. And the West has been influenced by this thinking. We see it in Catholicism, which bonds celibacy and spirituality together. And we see it in some Christians who want to see sex and the body and beauty as dirty and embarrassing and unholy. In contrast, biblical Christianity is the most body-positive religion in the world. Biblical Christianity is the most body-positive religion in the world. Because in the very first chapter of our Bibles, God makes a good creation. That includes any sexual desire you have. It includes all sexual intimacy. And yes, our desires and our intimacy are touched by sin and are distorted, which means every desire you have has sin in it. It doesn't mean that Christian living is about escaping from being a creature. Being a Christian is living aligned to God's will in his strength under his grace. And so sexual desire and sexual intimacy in its right place and time is beautiful, it's holy, it's thoroughly good. Moreover, the desire for sexual intimacy is good, but consumption is not necessary. Jesus was celibate. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament uphold and celebrate singleness. And we as Christians need to deny the modern myth that to be truly human means to be sexually active. It's not true. No one has ever died from a lack of sexual activity. Our sexual identity is not linked to how much sex we have. So what is the meaning of the Song of Songs? It's God's wisdom for good relationships. The poem describes two people relating well. The man is a man. The woman is a woman and the body parts are body parts. They're not perfect, nor is life easy, but they are growing as friends and as lovers. 
And this couple helps God's people undertake godly relationships of tenderness and love and perseverance, whether you're married or single, whether you're separated or divorced or widowed. And as you walk with these lovers, your chin gets constantly raised so your eyes can see the great lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's one final controversy. The song is sung under a dark cloud. The book does concern Solomon. We see that there in verse 1, don't we? But it does not describe his life. If you know anything about this powerful king, he had hundreds and hundreds of wives and mistresses. Solomon treated women like objects for sex. Solomon used his male power to dominate, hurt, and use women for political gain. He is in the book, but he is not one of the lovers. He is the antitype, the opposite of godly relationships. He's feared by the lovers and a challenge to any man at church at 1045 who uses power to dominate and degrade women. We don't know who wrote the book. We don't know. Maybe in his old age, Solomon came to his senses. And he wrote this song about a relationship he never had because of his folly. Okay, enough controversy. Let's go. Song of Songs, part one, beautiful words. Have a look there in verse two. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. We meet a woman engaged to her man. He's probably a local shepherd boy. And as she is chatting with her girlfriends, she just explodes with a powerful earthquake of desire. She wants to be with him. She wants to be kissed by him for his kisses are delightful. They're like sweet wine or they're like honey or they're just like chocolate cake, whatever works for you, right? Like, you know, like she just loves it. And her working boy is her king. He's not a king. He's a shepherd. But to her, she's her, he's her king. And she is intoxicated by his name. See it there? Your name is like perfume. His name is his character. There is something about this man that people want to be around. He is a safe place, a constructive place. He's a man of integrity. He is stable. He is prayerful. He seeks first the kingdom. The first verse of the greatest love song in the world celebrates character. Who you are when no one's looking. The key to a good relationship is character. Now, many at Church of 1045 have pursued relationships with no character. They were hot. They were helpful for a need that you had. They were available. But when someone you love is disappointing in the inside, the relationship is always disappointing. Godly character is to be treasured. 
It is to be celebrated. It is to be pursued whether you're 12 or 90. Maybe Solomon is offering a critique on himself. He was hot. He was rich. And his character was rubbish. Look at verse 5. The woman shares a personal struggle with her friends. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Cater, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. The woman, she looks in the mirror and she doesn't see a princess with pampered skin. She's dark. She's not racially dark. She's been weathered from working outdoors. Day after day in the sun. Her family life has been horribly difficult. She's been forced by her family, her brothers, to go and work outside. Now, we don't know if the brothers were just mean and lazy or whether there was injury. We don't know. But what we do know is she's had to work outdoors for a long time. And it meant her own body, her vineyard, has been neglected. And so she is full of self-doubt and insecurity. What will my lover think? Where is my lover? Will he mistake me for a prostitute like Tamar in Genesis 38? Self-doubt is experienced by most people. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you might see parts that are bigger or smaller, greyer, weaker. Self-doubt creates fear. Self-doubt creates barriers in relationship. But look at verse 8. If you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewellery, your neck with its necklace. Her man breaks the chains of self-doubt with words. He doesn't give her advice. Now, you're looking a bit dark today, so try this. No, no, he doesn't do that. Three times he calls her the most beautiful woman in the world. That is who she is to him. And then he compares her to one of Pharaoh's horses. You idiot. Hey, Dale, you trot like a Clydesdale. Actually, in those days, what he's saying to her is she is impressive. She is sleek. She is beautiful. She is strong. She is exciting. In verse 10, she compares her, he compares her dark cheeks, her neck, all of her, and says, I love it all. And his words, they soothe her and heal her and uplift her. And they flow from in here. They flow from her, his heart, his character, because all words flow from the heart. And she hears and she knows she is loved. It is said that some men would rather die than praise their wives. May it not be ever so at OEC. Because no husband and no wife can ever offer their spouse too much affection, whether in lovemaking or in conversation with words. 
It is not about using the right love language. It is about using words to bring life. See this quote from Trevor Longman, God calls husbands and wives to use our words to push back the chaos and shape our lives in order and beauty. He calls us to use our words to bring life to those who hear them. Affectionate words are not just for lovers, are they? Do you know who's the most affectionate one in the universe? It's God. God says abundant, effectual words to us. He delights in his people, sings over his people, speaks words of love to us. Let that be a model to us whether your family was good or horrid. Do you know that affectionate words build up children? Do you know affectionate words build up friendships? And affectionate words will build up church at 1045. The home is a dangerous place for many people. In Australia, there's a call for help every two minutes. One woman dies a week in Australia from domestic violence. It is an evil that the place that should be safe is a dangerous place because of the physical actions of some and the words of some. In the Song of Songs, her man's words and actions make her feel very, very secure. See it there in chapter 2, verse 3. Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. She delights to sit in his shade. Her lover sees her, knows her, protects her. She could not feel more safe. Here is a relationship as God intended, and it's a model for all relationships. Every person needs and deserves secure relationships in the family home, in growth group, at church at 1045, online, and in friendship. Now, none of us are perfect, are we? But we need to be honest that we can use our words to make another person feel secure or insecure, especially when we're tired or angry, sad, frustrated or hurt. And the words that that person hears are never, ever forgotten. It's never just, I was tired. No words are forgotten. So we need to own our words. Every sarcastic comment. Every racist remark, whether accidental or deliberate. Every awful text message. Because our words reflect our heart. And we may and probably do need to repent to God and to people for the words that we've said that have created insecurity. And then ask God to help us speak words of security and life. If you look at verse 8, 
It's action time. He bounds up to her like a gazelle. And he calls two times to her. Come away, my beautiful. Come away. It's time. The imagery is from winter finishing and spring starting. The waiting is over. It's time for us to explore, to live, to experience love in all of its full. And then he says something absolutely crazy. Look at verse 14. My dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crevices of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Here is a bloke that says to his wife, I want to hear your voice. Let's talk. It's that cartoon we all know where you see the man, TV remote, KO on the screen, watching the footy, and his wife with the bags packed is leaving. And the comment is, hey, Dale, can we talk about our communication issues at halftime? Here's a bloke who wants to sit down and listen to his wife. He doesn't have his phone in his hand. He's not rushing off to work. He's not fitting her in. He desperately just wants to talk and listen. And she says in verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. Now, it's a tricky verse. What I think it's saying is this. I would like to talk, but we need to get rid of the things that are ruining our communication. We've got to get rid of the foxes. And those foxes can be tiredness. We need to work on our tiredness so we can communicate well. It could be the third person in our relationship, that person who just seems to be in our marriage. We may need to get rid of them. It could be pornography. That's stopping us communicating well. It is maybe our over-focus on our children because that's all we ever talk about. Whatever the fox is, the lovers say, "We'll, we'll put them aside, we'll make them second priority. Why? Because we need to communicate. Because godly relationships depend on good communication. It's as if Solomon is saying, this is what I wish I did, but I never did. He had hundreds of wives. Each day he'd point to one. He'd point to his bedroom. That was all the conversation they ever had. And he reflects by saying, how stupid am I? I missed out on talking with my beloved. Today we've seen that words matter. The lover's words, they're affectionate and they're bold and they uplift and they heal and they nurture and they provide safety. Godly relationships grow with good communication. Yet the lover's words in Song of Songs, they're only a scent, a small scent that point us to the greatest lover in the universe. And his name is Jesus. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, Jesus not only speaks affectionate words to you, he puts his affection into action. And he came to earth and he died on that cross for your sins, and he rose from the dead. Do you know if you're a Christian, you are the most privileged person in the world because you are unlovable to God. 
but God loves you. And he shepherds you and he keeps you and he leads you and he forgives you and he clothes you with purity and he unites himself to you forever. Jesus Christ is the most perfect lover and he loves you. And he is behind every good loving relationship in the world. Whether it's at in a love, the love that's in our growth groups, the love that is between friends at youth group, or the love of a husband and wife. Because God-like relationships are not built on human strength. This is not saying just be better. No, no. Godly relationships are the overflow of a relationship with Jesus. If your relationship with Jesus is strong and you love him a little bit compared to how much he loves you, then you will relate well to your spouse and you will relate well to your children and you will relate well to your work colleagues because he is behind every good relationship. We've got much to grow as lovers, don't we? We're often forgetful and selfish and inconsistent to others and especially Jesus. Today's a good time to repent, to come to the cross and apologize for your foolish words and your hard heart and be really thankful for Jesus' love for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you hear every word that comes out of our mouth and we ask that you would forgive those who, those that cause pain that cause insecurity, that cause hurt. May you transform our mouths as you transform our character so we may speak words of affection and words of security. We'd have great ears that want to listen, that you would grow us as a speaking community. For you are our great lover and you have spoken great words to us and you have followed it up with action. May we be like you, Jesus. Amen.